You are now listening to Beyond Evil, a true crime podcast hosted by Kimberly Carroll. You will hear content that will not be suitable for all ages. There will be graphic subject matter. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This podcast will not be glorifying the accused or convicted, nor will the victims be exploited or further victimized. Beyond Evil and its host will be giving you information on some of the world's most evil criminals and the crimes they have committed, based on court documents and news reports. If you go beyond this point and like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend. Welcome, welcome, and welcome back to Beyond Evil, a true crime podcast. Once again, I am truly grateful that you decided to spend your time with me. I am your host, Kimberly Carroll, and this is our second episode, and I do hope you enjoy. Before I get into the case, I wanted to let everyone know there is an uncensored, highly opinionated version of this case on YouTube. So if you'd like to see and hear how I really feel about this case, head on over to beyondevilpodcast.com where you can find the YouTube video. So with nothing more to say, Let's get into the case. This is the case of Anthony Kirkland. Kirkland is a black man that was born September 13, 1968, and is currently sitting on Ohio's death row. On March 17, 2009, in Hamilton County, Ohio, Kirkland was indicted on 12 counts that included aggravated murder, rape, aggravated robbery, and gross abuse of a corpse. Before we get into the case that put him on death row, we have to go back to where he should have not been able to commit the crimes he did from 2006 to 2009, had the justice system not failed the first victim before failing all those after. May 20th, 1987, Kirkland was 18 years old when he brutally murdered Leola Douglas. Leola was 27 years old when she lost her life at the hands of Kirkland. It's somewhat confusing as to who Leola was to Kirkland. Some reports have her as his girlfriend. Other reports state Leola was the girlfriend of his uncle. Nonetheless, her refusal to entertain his sexual advances caused Kirkland to rape and strangle Leola, all before dousing her in lighter fluid and setting her on fire. Leola's severely burned body was found at the house on Ingleside Drive, where it has been said Kirkland lived with other relatives in Walnut Hills. Kirkland had already fled the scene by the time first responders found Leola's badly burned body at the top of the stairs of the home. Kirkland would shortly be apprehended by police and confessed to the rape and murder of Leola not long after his arrest. His lawyer at the time said Kirkland and Leola argued after she threatened to expose an affair he was having with a married woman. 18-year-old Kirkland took a plea of manslaughter and served only 16 years of a 25-year sentence. One of Leola's brothers, named Stanton, would later tell Fox 19 News that by the time he got to the house, everyone had gone. He called his mother at the morgue and heard nothing but screams. Stanton said he picked up his mother from the morgue and his mother said the only way they could identify her was by her uniform. That is how badly Leola's body was burned and they let this man off on manslaughter charges. Stanton says he plans on attending Kirkland's trials 
and he hopes to one day meet the Kenny family because his family may be able to help them heal. Leona also has a twin brother named Leonard, and he did an interview in 2018 for ABC 9 News when Kirkland's case was up for resentencing. Leonard states that he would like to be present at Kirkland's execution. Kirkland was released on parole for his 1987 case, September 3, 2003. Supposedly, he was granted early release due to prison overcrowdedness and for having an excellent record of behavior. But the state disputes the excellent record by stating Kirkland threatened to kill several inmates and prison staff during his 16 years of incarceration. County records say Kirkland was denied parole and was set for another hearing in 2008, but a court ruling forced the parole board to hold another hearing in 2003, which led to his early release. Fox 19 News reported on March 26, 2009, that Mike Allen, the prosecutor for Hamilton County, claimed there was a letter sent to the parole board opposing the parole of Kirkland in 2003. But as of March 26, 2009, the prosecutor's office was still looking for said letter. Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieter sent a letter in 1997 where Kirkland was up for parole the first time. That letter described Kirkland's crime as brutal and violent. He was not granted parole and may not have been granted parole in 2003 had a similar letter been received by the parole board. On October 25, 2004, which is just a little over a year after Kirkland was released from prison, he was released from parole, making him a completely free man. Kirkland didn't waste much time because less than three months after being released from parole in January 2005, he was accused of breaking into his neighbor's home in Evanston. He was accused of raping the resident at Knife Point. It's been said that the neighbor had him over to her home several times in the past, but it's unknown what type of relationship they had. Kirkland ended up being acquitted of all charges. He spent six to seven months in jail while the trial was going on. The victim in the case was quoted saying Kirkland had a crazy look in his eye. He didn't seem himself. It's unreported why he was acquitted of all charges. Between 2005 and 2007, Kirkland met a woman by the name of Roberta Baldwin, who he would later father a son with. Supposedly, they met in church. He briefly provided for them by working a few different miscellaneous jobs. Sadly, during this time, Kirkland would take the life of a 14-year-old young lady along with two other women ages 25 and 45. May 9, 2006, the body of 14-year-old Cassonia Crawford was found by city workers doing landscaping. The body was discovered underneath a pile of old tires. It was located in a secluded area approximately 10 feet down a hillside from the end of a dead-end road. The body was heavily charred and decomposed, so much so that the responding officers couldn't determine the race or gender of the body. The front teeth had been recently knocked out. The only clothing on the body was a sock on one foot. Just beyond the end of the road, the police found a burn pit, a charred site where they believe the body was burned before it was dragged down the hillside and buried under the tires. Near the pit, 
they found a long piece of timber. It was charred at one end, so it appeared it had been used to poke and stir the fire. The forensic pathologist was unable to do a rape examination because the pelvic area was almost completely charred. Investigators were also unable to look for DNA evidence under the victim's fingernails because her hands and forearms were completely charred. The body was positively identified through dental x-rays to be that of 14-year-old African-American Cassonia Crawford. On June 15, 2006, the still freshly burned body of Mary Jo Newton was found still smoking approximately 35 feet from a dead-end road. Her right foot was approximately 37 feet from where her body was found. Tests indicated the fire was started using either lighter fluid or paint thinner. The autopsy was unable to determine the cause of death, but it did say that she was already dead before the fire was set. Eventually, dental records identified the body as Mary Jo Newton, a 45-year-old Caucasian female. In the spring of 2008, skeletal remains of a 25-year-old Kimya Rolison from California were found. For almost a year, Kimya was a Jane Doe after she was discovered in a heavily wooded area, also at the end of another dead-end road. Kimya's bones were found scattered all over. Her hands and feet were never found. The cause of death was sharp force injury to her neck caused by a cutting instrument. Kimya's bones showed traces of burning on the face and the front of her hip and thigh bones. A forensic anthropologist determined that the remains most likely belonged to an African-American woman, probably between the ages of 30 and 55 years. I'm not sure how they went from that recommendation to 25-year-old Kimya, but they did. And after a call to the family in California, they verified Kimya was indeed missing. Dental records were provided by the family, which confirmed the identity of 25-year-old African-American Kimya Rollison. Now, May 14, 2007, Kirkland threatened to kill his own son, then 18-month-old. He had a standoff with SWAT at the home of Roberta Baldwin, the child's mother. Kirkland was holding a three-pronged skewer to his son's throat. He would later be convicted of a lesser charge of unlawful restraint and serve 115 days in jail. This is when Kirkland got on the radar of Detective Wetherill. The house that Kirkland was arrested at was near the location of the bodies that were found of Newton and Crawford. On March 15, 2007, Detective Wetherill interviewed Kirkland on both the Crawford and Newton homicides. Kirkland was shown a photo of Crawford, but he denied knowing her. Kirkland acknowledged that he lived on Ridgeway Avenue, the halfway between the two crime scenes. He also admitted to spending time in the area on several occasions. However, he denied having any involvement with either of the homicides. Unfortunately, police had no forensic evidence tying Kirkland to the murders. No eyewitnesses, no admission from Kirkland. Consequently, they were unable to arrest or charge him. Cincinnati Police Chief Tom Streeter referred to Kirkland as a one-in-a-million nightmare. Because Kirkland 
is just an all around bad guy and he can't stay out of trouble, once again, he is in trouble. September 17th, 2007. Kirkland would be in the law's crosshairs again. Reverend Walter Bledsoe had to get a restraining order against Kirkland on behalf of his whole family. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any further information as to why, but I could find out that the judge ordered Kirkland to stay away from the entire family. September 26, 2007, Kirkland is arrested for soliciting sexual acts from a 13-year-old. This isn't just a random girl. This is the daughter of a woman he was dating and living with on and off. He would be convicted of importuning and serve about one year in jail. The young lady, who we will call Kay because of her age, was 16 by the time she took the stand in Kirkland's murder trial. She would tell the jury how three years ago, she arrived home from school around 3.30 in the afternoon and found herself alone in the apartment with Kirkland, which wasn't something that didn't happen and she was not worried. But this day would be a lot different than in every other day. After making herself something to eat, she would retreat to her room where Kirkland took it upon himself to open her bedroom door with his pants down and his penis exposed. He didn't enter the room. He just stood in the hallway. Kay repeatedly told him to go away, which he eventually did. After about five or 10 minutes, Kirkland returned, still exposing himself. This time, he was carrying a piece of paper. He held the paper so Kay could read it. The note would read, I want to be the first to eat you out. I'll pay you. Kay continued yelling at him to leave. And Kirkland did. But he came to her room a fourth time. This time, he was fully dressed. He walked in her room, placed $5 on her dresser, and walked out. Unsure what to do, Kay stayed on the phone with a friend for another 10 minutes. Then she left the apartment and waited outside in the cold for her mother to return. After she told her mom what happened, her mom ordered Kirkland out of the apartment and together Kay and her mom went to the local police station to report the incident. Hamilton County Judge Melba Marsh sentenced Kirkland to one year, which was the maximum sentence for soliciting sex from a teen, followed by five years of parole. Kirkland was also ordered to register as a sex offender. On October 20th, 2008, Kirkland was released from prison for the solicitation charge and ordered to stay a year in a rehabilitation center, which was basically a halfway house. But on February 27th, 2009, just a little over four months, Kirkland will be kicked out of the halfway house for fighting. There is a lot of controversy surrounding the exit from the halfway house. February 27, 2009, Chris Lohman, the president of the halfway house, states Kirkland fought with another resident and the police were called out. But because fighting is forbidden, Kirkland was removed from the house. I am assuming Kirkland was the aggressor because nothing states that the other person was removed from the facility. They did say the police escorted Kirkland away without arrest 
because the other resident refused to press charges. Now, if the police know Kirkland is a registered sex offender and he has been kicked out of his place of supervised residency, how do they not hold him until he can produce an alternative approved address? I did some Google searching and the Cincinnati Inquirer reported that he was there voluntarily. Their report states that he didn't have anywhere to go when he was paroled, so his parole officer recommended the center. However, that story contradicts the release paperwork stating he needed to be in a complete supervised facility for a year. What's even crazier, the staff at the halfway house didn't report Kirkland's exit to his parole officer until Monday, the following Monday, March 3rd, 2009. This is according to Loman and Andrea Carson, a spokeswoman for the parole authority. Loman claimed workers didn't have a way to contact parole officers on the weekend. Carson disputes that, saying workers have the contact information for parole officers. I'm going to believe Carson because this isn't like they're housing saints. Why would you not have the parole officer's information on file when you are in the business of housing parolees? Now that Kirkland is out and about and free and clearly with no place to be or go, he decides on March 1st, 2009, he was going to break into his girlfriend's house on Ridgeway Avenue. He hid in a bathroom before attacking Frederick Hughes, Roberta's new boyfriend, with scissors. Hughes survived, but was stabbed over 10 times. An arrest warrant for aggravated burglary and felonious assault will be the first of a series of warrants issued in the next few days. March 4th, 2009, Kirkland's parole officer gets another arrest warrant for failure to report and register an address. However, the records state that the parole officer started his search for Kirkland on March 2nd and then enlisted the assistance of the Southern Ohio Fugitive Apprehension Strike Team on the 4th. On March 5th, Kirkland goes over to his son's mother's house once again and threatens her with a knife. She calls the police, he flees, and another warrant is filed against him for charges of domestic violence, aggravated menacing, and violation of a protection order. Now we will begin the beginning to the end of Kirkland, March 7th, 2009, 3.45 p.m. Esme Kinney, 13-year-old young lady, goes for a jog near her house in Winton Hills. Around 4.21, her mother calls the police to report that her daughter is missing. Her mother found a pair of man's pants and seven unopened bottles of beer on the corner of their property. Clearly, Esme's mother knows her child and she knew she should have been back from her jog 20 minutes ago. After going to the edge of the property and locating this, these items, calling the police was the only move. After she called the police, she began searching for her daughter in the woods. She unknowingly got 10 yards of where her daughter's body would ultimately be found. However, she spotted an open door 
of a vacant house and went inside to search for Esme. Her husband would join her with one of their dogs shortly after. As they continued to search, a police officer showed up. The officer instructed the Kinneys to return to their home and stay there so they did not compromise the investigation. Ironically, one of the canine unit officers that heard the call lives on the same street as the Kinney family. She and her partner were on their way to join the search, so they took a maintenance road because the partner is from that area and she knows back routes. As they were searching, they discovered Kirkland sleeping under a tree. He told the officers he was homeless and just sleeping. However, the officers spotted two steak knives sticking out of his pocket. They asked him to stand, they searched him, and when they searched him, they found a lighter and what will turn out to be Esme's watch and iPod. The iPod had etched on the back of it property of Esme. At that time, the officers decided to place Kirkland in handcuffs. Kirkland initially gave his name as Anthony Palmore, Palmore being his father's last name. He claimed that he had found the watch and iPod in the woods. He intentionally pointed in the opposite direction of where Esme's body would later be found. Meanwhile, they were unsuccessful in confirming his identity with the name they originally gave him. But about 20 to 30 minutes after, Kirkland gave his real name. And that's when he was read his rights and taken into custody. As the search for Esme continued, police transported Kirkland to the police station. Sometime after 11 p.m. on the 7th, the police got confirmation from Esme's mother that the watch and iPod belonged to her daughter. Something everyone already knew because her name was etched on them. Nonetheless, they still needed confirmation. After the confirmation was reported, Kirkland became the number one suspect. 3 a.m. on now March 8, 2009, searchers found the body of Esme Kinney in the woods. She was naked except for her shoes and her socks. Her body was propped up against a tree with her arms crossed and her legs spread. Her growing and inner thighs and left hand were severely burned. The Kenny family learned from the news that Esme's body had been found. It's unknown why it took the chaplain and the chief two hours to make it to the Kenny home to confirm their daughter had been found. Esme's official cause of death was asphyxiation due to ligature strangulation. This was confirmed by a fracture of the hyoid bone, ligature marks on her neck, and petechiae on her face, consistent with a long struggle. There was also evidence of pre-mortem trauma to Esme's vagina, consistent with rape. A few days later, the police found Esme's top in a parking lot of a nearby vacant building. The shirt had burn holes, but it also had signs that it was cut open in the front. A trail of burnt clothing led police to a white plastic bag containing Esme's gray sweatpants and underpants. A portion of the sweatpants were burned, 
but the underwear was not. Investigators took DNA samples from Kirkland's hands, penis, and stains he had in his boxer shorts when he was arrested. DNA consistent with Esme was found in all three collection specimens. There were also partial shoe prints in the woods that were consistent with the type of sneaker Kirkland was wearing when he was arrested. On the morning of March 8, 2009, Detective Keith Witherall came into the station on his day off to interview Kirkland. Remember, he interviewed Kirkland back in March of 2007. Kirkland would be interviewed several times, but the first was the morning of March 8th, and it lasted over four hours. During Kirkland's first interview, he would offer multiple inconsistent versions of events. At the beginning, he claimed to be confused as to why he was arrested altogether. Then he thought he was arrested because of an outstanding warrant with an altercation he had with his ex-girlfriend's current boyfriend and that he had no idea that it had anything to do with a missing girl. He repeatedly denied seeing anyone, including Esme, out jogging in the vicinity of the basin near where he was found sleeping. As he continued to claim he knew nothing about Esme, he also acted stunned to learn that the watch and iPod belonged to the missing girl. He continued to insist he stumbled upon the items while walking in the woods. After further questioning, he admitted to seeing the victim at the basin, saying at the time he saw her, he was with some other dude named Pedro. He said he found 12 Budweiser beers and drank some with Pedro, then supposedly left to find something to eat. He went on to tell all sorts of tales on going to McDonald's and riding a bike to his mom's where the lights were off. So he went back to the basin. Then Kirkland said he met up with the victim after he left Pedro. He said what happened was an accident, the fault of his temper, his sense of hopelessness and helplessness and the lack of power. His words were, I saw the girl running and she ran into me and caused me to drop my bottle of beer and offered me the watch to make amends. Kirkland then told the investigators that he no longer saw the girl in front of him. He saw his son's mother and lost it. He punched her and knocked her out, kicked her and punched her in the stomach. When asked by the detective if he stomped her, he said, no, not really. Mind you, all of this is said before they told him that her body had been found. The detective pushed for an exact location and Kirkland claimed she should still be alive. Then Kirkland claimed that Esme ran from him and he chased her down only to beat her. He punched her several times in the head and once she was down on the ground, he continued to hit her. He alleged that her clothes were intact and that he left her on the trail with Pedro. Good old Pedro. 
After several more hours of questioning, Kirkland admitted he knew Esme and he knew where her body was. He told detectives that he could take them to her. He said that the two literally ran into one another and the collision caused him to drop his beer. He then lost his temper. He punched Esme multiple times and kicked her, but he claimed to have left her alive. At this time, detectives decided to tell Kirkland Esme's body was located and she was dead. Now, Kirkland has to change his story. Now that he knows that Esme's body has been found, he starts claiming to have no memory of the events. He then admits to chasing Esme in the wood, but he continued to claim that he left her injured but alive. He repeatedly insisted that she was wearing clothes when he left her. As the questioning continued, Kirkland claimed to have left Esme alive with a man he knew only as Pedro. But when challenged, Kirkland confessed, knowing all along that she was dead. He admitted that he had returned to the basin some hours after the murder to move the body. Kirkland said Esme died because of his hatred. But when asked directly if he had killed her, he said no. And as the interview concluded, Kirkland was still insisting that he had learned the location of the body from imaginary Pedro. After waiting about two hours in an interrogation room, Detective Bill Hilbert came in to question Kirkland. He wanted to question Kirkland about Mary Jo and Cassania. Kirkland confessed immediately. He started with Mary Jo's murder. According to Kirkland, on the day of the murder, he picked Mary up in the College Hill area. They drove around to various places, ended up in Eden Park, where they had an argument. According to Kirkland, during the argument, Mary struck him. He then choked her to death. He drove to Avondale, dumped her body at the end of a dead-end street, and set her body on fire using gasoline as the accelerant. According to Kirkland, he burned the body because fire purifies, and burning the body was a proper burial. Kirkland also confessed to murdering Cassania. He told Detective Hilbert that he first saw Cassania around 1 a.m. on a bridge near Walnut Hills High School. According to Kirkland, Cassania started a conversation with him, and he paid her $20 to continue talking to him. But they had an argument, and Cassania threw the money back at him, and he choked her to death. He then carried the body into the woods and set it on fire. Using lighter fluid as an accelerant, he then carried her body down a hill and covered her with tires. Kirkland then gave another account of Esme's murder. Kirkland would say that he collided with Esme, and she was apologetic. He became enraged and chased her into the woods. When she tripped over a small fence, he caught her and choked her. At first, Kirkland denied raping her, but he eventually told Hilbert, she said she would do whatever I wanted, just don't hurt her. He tried to have sex with her, but he was unable to penetrate her completely, so he made her masturbate him. 
Esme said she wouldn't tell anyone, but Kirkland did not believe her. So he choked her to death. In a later interview, Kirkland would explain that he strangled her with a rag because he could not kill her with his bell hands. Kirkland propped Esme's body up against a fallen tree. Using her clothes as an accelerant, partially burned her body. After staying with the body for a while, he went to go find lighter fluid to perform his burning ritual. He eventually returned to the woods, but did not go back to the body. Instead, he fell asleep under the tree where the police eventually found him. In a third interview, detectives asked Kirkland about an unidentified burned body found in the Pulte Street area. At first, Kirkland claimed he had only killed three women, but he finally admitted to having killed one more person. According to Kirkland, he knew the Pulte Street victim. Her name was Kim. She worked as a prostitute when he met her in December 2006. He picked her up in his van, paid her for sex. As they drove along, they began to argue. Kirkland pulled the van over and stabbed her in the throat with her own knife. Kirkland laid her body out on a bed of wood, sprayed it with lighter fluid, and set it afire. He then covered it and left her to be found by the detectives later. Kirkland would be sentenced to 70 years for Mary Jo and for Kimya, and sentenced to death for the aggravated murders of Cassonia and Esme. A jury comprised of six white men, four white women, and two black women deliberated for two hours on August 6, 2010. They unanimously recommended the death penalty for Kirtman. There was a second sentencing trial because of remarks made by the prosecutor in his closing argument back in 2010. At the second death penalty hearing, which took place over two weeks in 2018, a jury in Hamilton County Court recommended on August 28, 2018, that Kirkland be sentenced to death. Kirkland's execution was scheduled for March 9, 2019. However, Kirkland's lawyer tried one more time to have his sentence changed to life in prison. Nonetheless, on August 18, 2020, all appeals for resentencing have been concluded and Anthony Kirkland will be put to death. A date has not yet been set. However, it's inescapable. This will end the case of Anthony Kirkland. I do hope you enjoyed listening. If you would like to see and hear the very opinionated version of this case, please head on over to YouTube and search for Beyond Evil Podcasts, and you will find me doing this all over again in a much different way. If you are interested in hearing Kirkland's statement to spare his life or read any of the Quirk documents, please visit beyondevilpodcast.com. You will also find other source material for past cases. Thank you for listening, and please leave a review, good or bad. It will help me with my growth. Until next time, be safe 
and stay healthy.